2: Dot com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's help, H-E-L-P, dot com slash sacred text.
0: Chapter 8, The Flight of the Fat Lady. In no time at all, Defense Against the Dark Arts had become most people's favorite class. Only Draco Malfoy and his gang of Slytherins had anything bad to say about Professor Lupin. I'm Matt Potts,
2: And I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
0: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Okay, Vanessa, this week you are going to tell us a story about respect, which I cannot wait to hear.
2: This story is hot off the presses. I was home in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago, and for various reasons, my book became a topic of conversation at dinner with my family. And when I had written my book, because I include a lot of personal family stories in it, I sent it to my parents to read ahead of time to make sure that they were okay with everything I was saying. Because most of the sort of family secrets that I was sharing were about their parents. And so I wanted to make sure they were okay with it. And I don't know why it didn't occur to me to send them to my brothers, other than the fact that it felt like if my parents were okay with it, Who cared what my brothers thought, maybe? And also, (laughs) I think on some level, I didn't think my brothers were going to read the book or care. And so I was at dinner with my brothers, and it came up that they had read my book, which kind of feels like an invasion of privacy, but whatever. And they were arguing with me about whether or not it was appropriate for me to include certain stories about my grandparents in this book. And— I was really surprised by how much the three of us disagreed about what would be the most respectful thing to do. I was like, I think it is a high form of respect to share their stories. And like, I want to honor them. All some people know about them is that they're Holocaust survivors. And I want people to know that Holocaust survivors aren't saints or heroes. They were just people. Also, they were flawed. (laughs) And like, that is part of who they were. And I don't say anything bad about them that i didn't witness right like it it just never felt like i was disrespecting them it just made me realize how much acting respectful is highly individualistic i used to think of it Is cultural, right? You know, in Judaism, you put your hat on when you go inside a synagogue and in church, you take a hat off when you go inside the sanctuary. And that is how I understood respect that like all cultures sort of have different ideas of what's respectful. But it was so interesting to me that my brothers and I, who have all four of the same grandparents and the same parents and everything, had such different points of view as to what was respectful toward my grandparents.
0: Vanessa, that's a really really interesting story because I was thinking about that a lot as well. Giving someone respect has to do with giving them what they are due, right? Like what they deserve. That's respectful Mm -hmm. to give people what they deserve. We all have different ideas about what we all deserve and what we owe one another, right? And so respect very much becomes a practice in discernment and disagreement at times. You know, etymologically speaking. Yeah. The word respect comes from the Latin for respect respect the right and and the repart means again you know like return or whatever right and the spect is from the same as specter to look and so it actually means like to look back or look again or to regard mm-hmm. again right mm-hmm. so what's especially useful about your story is that you know it had to do with family history how do we look again or rightly regard those who have come before us and there are differences in that because people have different ideas of what we owe the dead or what we owe our family or what we owe those who have gone before which means that our sense of what is respectful is going to really diverge. That's that's really interesting and a really illuminating story. Thanks, Vanessa.
2: That etymology is so helpful because we were trying to figure out who deserved what. Because, right, like I told a story about my grandfather that puts him in a bad light, but shines, I think, a positive light on my grandmother who I feel didn't get her due in her lifetime, right? My grandfather was very charming. She was less so. And so to me, it was about trying to right that wrong. Whereas my brothers were like, silence is the best option, right? Respecting them by not sharing secrets. It's It's just so interesting how it can all come from the right place. Yeah. And that it's just that we have different ways of looking back.
0: What's really interesting about the story is that everyone in the argument is trying to dignify the lives of these people, right? But there are different opinions about what constitutes the dignity of these lives. You want to lift up a part of your grandmother's story that you think deserves telling. And you also don't think that faults are undignified. You think that being fully human and perhaps faulty is not an undignified thing. And so we can speak honestly about it. Right. But obviously, like, People can have different opinions about that. And and also, it's not as clearly drawn as that because, you know, some faults maybe are dignifying and other ones are less dignifying. And so it gets very messy. And what's respectful, what is dignifying, it gets complicated really quickly.
2: Yeah. Well, Matt, we respect our listeners' time. And therefore, we try to succinctly recap the chapter in a mere 30 seconds per person. Are you excited to go?
0: I'm excited and eager to try.
2: On your mark, get set. Go.
0: Okay, so the Slytherins don't like Lupin because he doesn't dress well enough, but he's a great teacher and um, and Oliver Wood wants to win the championship and they want the team wants to win it for him and then they go to, to uh, they're going to, going to go to Hogsmeade and that's exciting and Harry wants to go to Hogsmeade so he goes and asks McGonagall if he can go to Hogsmeade and she says, no, you can't go to Hogsmeade and then um, he doesn't go to Hogsmeade and then everyone comes back and they come back with a lot of sweets but but Harry gets to meet Lupin first and Lupin tells him it was because Voldemort was going to come out that I didn't want you to fight the Boggart and then oh my gosh, the painting is slashed and the And the fat lady is gone.
2: You did so well.
0: I I feel like my heart rate is too fast. Like, there are two goals with a 30-second recap. One, give a good 30-second recap out Mm -hmm. of respect for our listeners.
2: Right. And two.
0: Number two, try to keep my blood pressure at a manageable level out of respect for my arteries. So, (laughs) there's two goals there. And, you know, we're doing, we're working on one at a time. Let's say that.
2: Well, you did great at goal number one.
0: Thank you. Proud of you. Vanessa, I would like to see your cool, calm, and collected 30 seconds. I'm I'm looking forward to your 30-second recap. Three, two, one, go.
2: So Matt did such a great job. Just a few things that he missed. Hermione and Ron are fighting a lot. Crookshanks keeps going after scabbers and Ron is like, oh my God, pull off the dogs. And she's like, it's a cat. And then also um, Lavender's bunny dies and (laughs) Hermione's like, who cares about empathy? Truth is truth, which is a bad look. And then the fat lady is slashed and she's run off and Peeves and Dumbledore have a conversation about what happened. And it turns out that it was Sirius Black.
0: I'm sad that our listeners can't. It's not a video 30-second recap because you actually, you pushed up your glasses when speaking about Hermione uh, valuing truth over empathy in a way that really kind of rounded out your 30-second recap for me, really sort of gave life to it. You're welcome. It was artful, masterful and artful.
2: Do, Do you know what is not artful? And this is a great place to start, I think, in this conversation, is that moment between Hermione and Lavender.
0: Sure, let's start there.
2: So as we all remember, Professor Trelawney said to Lavender in the first divination class, the thing that you're dreading is going to happen on October the 16th. And then we, we, in this chapter, see October the 16th having come around, and Lavender has a letter, and she's crying because her bunny has died. And she says, I should have known it was going to happen. Trelawney warned me. And Hermione is like, now is the time for me to make a point about divination. While you're crying and grieving the loss of your bunny is the time for me to make this point. And I would argue that Hermione thinks she's being respectful. Like Hermione thinks she's making a dignified point. Lavender is saying I should have known and Hermione in part is saying you shouldn't blame yourself. There is no reason for you to know. But Hermione has this ulterior motive which is figuring out that divination is full of crap. You know, we talked about the cultural aspect of respect and the different perspectives of respect, but respect is so nuanced that also there's a time and a place for different forms of respect. Like Lavender in three months might be open to this conversation and actually, you know, deserves the dignity and respect of her roommate Hermione's point of view on divination. It's just in this moment, not only is she not ready for that conversation, mind is actually closing off the possibility for that future conversation by bringing it up now. So it just strikes me like how difficult respect is to show.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And it's not just time and place. It's also that sometimes sort of the, the gestures and actions of respect compete against one another, right? Because I think what's going on here is, as you say, I don't think that Hermione is thinking in this moment, oh, I would like to be disrespectful to Lavender right now, even though that's kind of what happens, right? She does want to be disrespectful to something. I think she wants to be disrespectful (laughs) to Trelawney and to Divination. Mm -hmm. If respect is about giving a thing its due, she does not believe that Trelawney or Divination already deserve the credit that they get, right? Maybe it's out of respect for truth, or maybe it's concerned to disrespect Trelawney and Divination, it's because of these things that Termani is distracted from the person who's right in front of her, who needs a different form of respect, right? Who doesn't need the truth articulated to her. Lavender just needs a little bit of sympathy and patience, right? And so, yeah, like this kind of time and place question or just the, the, the idea of nuance is that, you know, we can't uphold every one of our values all the time in every interaction, Right, the human thing, the empathic thing, is try to discern what this moment needs, and to know that there will be future moments in which I can also show the respect that's necessary in those future moments. Yeah. So yeah. So you're right. Hermione just kind of she muffs it here, like she she, she blows it, and she kind of hurts Lavender's feelings, and and actually makes it more difficult for her to ever have a conversation about anything with Lavender, whether her bunny or divination later on.
2: Absolutely. Unless, like, a hearty apology comes, it's like, I shouldn't have done that.
0: Yeah, right. I think these subtleties of respect, when respect is due, what form it ought to take, when certain values compete against each other and make us have to determine, like, where and how to offer our respect, I think this is all on offer right at the beginning of the chapter. When the chapter opens, there's one group of students that disrespects Lupin, the new dark arts teacher, right? But it's interesting, the text says that the the reason for the disrespect, the reason they found him to be a substandard teacher is because his clothes were shabby. Their sign for whether or not a person was due some credit or due some respect was outward appearance, you know, wealth, comfort, affluence, whatever. Because Lupin did not signal these things, they immediately dismissed him and believed that he was not due respect as a teacher or as a person— the other students though just know he's a good teacher, right? And look right yeah. beyond the shabbiness of his clothes. Especially, you know, in the beginning of this chapter, it's right after that Bogart lesson, they immediately respect Lupin as a skilled and able teacher. And the lessons keep coming and they trust him and they understand what he's doing and they follow him and follow his instructions because they respect him as a teacher. It's just really interesting that that the Slytherins, because they're so misguided, because they have the wrong standard for what is respectful they actually lose the opportunity to gain the gifts of instruction that Lupin's offering, right? Their failure to respect him actually becomes a detriment to them. I mean, I'm not sure how many of these Slytherins are actually interested in dark arts the way that Lupin is, but the fact that they dismiss him means that what he actually has to offer them becomes inaccessible to them. Because again, they're distracted, kind of like Hermione. They're paying attention to the wrong thing.
2: Right. I love that point that showing a lack of respect means that you're sort of shutting your eyes to the potential from that person. Hmm. It's really hard to maintain a curiosity once you've made a decision about whether or not someone deserves your respect, right? The disrespect is a way of closing your ears and your eyes. And I think disrespect is important at times, right? A lack of respect for something can be what calls you to protest, right? I don't respect the new anti-trans legislation. I think that that is actually harmful legislation. And so I am going to protest with dollars and, you know, in all of the ways that I can. So I do think that active disrespect is important sometimes, but we also need to know that respect, which I had never thought of before, Matt, but like respect is sort of, turning up the volume on someone else's microphone and a lack of respect is turning down that volume and being like, I don't, I don't need to pay attention to what it is that you're saying. And that was Hermione's mistake, right? She meant to turn down the volume on Trelawney's microphone, but while doing it completely tuned out lavender also.
0: Yeah. And I think the other thing about respect is that we tend to, to think about it and, terms that are too broad, right? It's possible to have respect for one attribute or practice of a person, but not have as much respect for another attribute or practice, right? Like, like maybe the Slytherins could be like, I actually don't respect Lupin's sartorial choices. I don't, I don't, I think he should make make better choices with his clothing or try to tidy up a little bit, but he's clearly a great dark arts teacher. Or, right, you could say, you know, Matt Potts is, I don't respect his 30-second recaps, but he gives some darn good etymologies right like and you to be able to hold both those things this is about like which parts of our opponents we respect or which parts of our enemies we are willing to to dignify even if we mm-hmm. want to disrespect and not grant any, any dignity to their crimes and errors and wrongdoings right this idea of lending respect to certain attributes or values or habits while withholding it from others leads me to another moment in the chapter, right? Which is Harry runs into Lupin while the third years are all out in Hogsmeade. And they have a conversation in Lupin's office. There are actually a couple of respect moments here, which I think we should discuss. The first has to do with Lupin's revelation of why he did not let Harry fight the Boggart. I think we ought to talk about that. But right now I want to talk about, you know, when Snape walks in at the end. We know that Snape dislikes Lupin. Mm -hmm. We know that in some ways he disrespects him. I think that he respects him in other ways. We can talk about which parts of Lupin's life and practice he respects. But what he does is he's bringing a potion, right? He's bringing a potion to help Lupin, which to me, for all Snape's sort of Cynicism and cruelty and even suspicion of Lupin seems like a, like a respectful thing. Like he says at the end, you know, if you need more, let me know. I can brew you up some more, right? It's not like, it doesn't seem like it's, oh, Dumbledore's making me do this and I hate it. It seems more like, here's what you need. I can, make you, I can brew you more if necessary. Which for all his dislike and maybe, you know, justified dislike of Lupin, he's trying to help him in a, in a relatively respectful way.
2: I agree. I was really struck by this moment uh, upon reading this chapter because of the theme of how respectful he is and how how respectful Lupin is of Snape and of his great potion making skills. Yeah. Arguably, Lupin has just, to a large extent, disrespected Snape. You know, I think it is a problematic gendered representation of that disrespect and it was for complicated reasons, but Snape is annoyed at Lupin because, you know, rumors have gone around the school that when Neville said that the thing he was most afraid of was Snape, Lupin's suggestion was to visualize Snape in Neville's grandmother's clothing. And, and yet, there still seems to be this mutual respect going on that we're led to believe is sort of despite this disagreement, you know, or this, you know, fissure between them. And I think that there seems to just really be a respect of health care, right? That like, if I can physically take care of you, if I have the power and the skill to do that, it's my responsibility to do it, even if I don't like you. And you're weak and unwell right now. And so I'm going to, right? And we know that this is something that, doctors and pharmacists and nurses and, you know, orderlies have to do all the time of take care of people who aren't kind to them or whose politics they disagree with or, you know, whatever it is. And I, it's really lovely to see Snape in this role and how, how well he succeeds at it.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I, you know, we spoke last week about the implied transphobia of that representation and the, of the ridicule that associates that representation of, of Snape. And we said again in this chapter when you know the text has this line that that Snape didn't see the humor in it, which implies that there is you know that that it was meant for ridicule, right? And that right. Snape's problem is that he can't take a joke as if this is necessarily a joke, right? Right So that we can I mean, I think we should call attention to the at a kind of metatextual level the implied disrespect of gender presentations just in this aspect of the of the text. But the other thing about, like, what's going on between Snape and Lupin, regardless of whether he ought to feel offended, Snape does feel offended, is that you also get the sense that Lupin went to Snape out of respect for his skill, right? Like, it it doesn't seem like in the past that Lupin and the other marauders were, were in the habit of humbling themselves before Snape, Right. Right. But what we have here is we believe that that Lupin goes to Snape and says like, you can do this better than me and just kind of says like, I need your, you are talented, you are good at this, you know, you can you can help me and, and ask for it in a kind of humbling way. And that is that posture of deference before the skill and accomplishment of another when asking for help is a form of respect for that other's gifts. And and it seems at least, you know, a more cynical yeah. reading of Snape would be that might be what he's responding to as well, right? Because because he's been respected in this one narrow instance, he's willing to respond in, a, in, in kind.
2: I want to give him the benefit of the doubt on that, right? Because sure. he could say, yeah. like, it's in my storeroom. Come and get it. I'll leave it there for you. Yeah. And I actually think that that would be fair. But he doesn't. He's still kind and delivers it to him yeah. and offers more. I actually think
1: Snape really deserves yeah. a lot of credit in this moment.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right.
1: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
2: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. Redfin, it's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Matt, a a very endearing form of respect, I think, is demonstrated in this chapter between the twins and Oliver Wood. You know, we we go to the first Quidditch practice and Oliver Wood is like giving his little speech about how this is the year they're going to win. And they've had bad luck in the past, but they can do it this time. And he gives a tell, right, of like, it's my last year. <laughs> and so it, it'd it be really nice if we won this year because it's my last chance. And what's so funny is that, you know, one way to see Fred and George is that they never respect authority. Just like the idea of authority, they don't respect. They'll, they respect a person because they respect them as a person, but because they theoretically have power over... Fred and George, they do not care. But it's so sweet the way that they sort of, like, move to take care of Oliver. Oliver is making the speech about how great each individual player is. And it's Fred and George who then say, and you're good, too, right? They say, we think you're very good, too, Oliver, said George. Cracking keeper, said Fred. And they start as teasing. But then they switch, right? It says, Wood spoke so dejectedly that even Fred and George looked sympathetic. Oliver, this year's our year, said Fred. Right? They switched not because they respect his authority, but because they respect his love of the game and his just like hope to win. And there's something about this speech in Oliver and the fact that he's like, this is my last chance. That wins Fred and George over to respecting him or they always respect him. But this is a moment where they feel as though they actually should demonstrate that respect in a way that would code more widely as respect.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I also was thinking about this particular speech around the theme of respect, but from a slightly different angle, like thinking about this idea of giving one what one is due. It's almost like you feel disrespected by the universe when things don't go your way, but you have done all the things that make you believe that you are owed what you want, right? So, for example, I'm a fan of the Detroit Tigers, as you know, (laughs) Vanessa, and two of my big heartbreaks in the last 20 years was in 2006, the Detroit Tigers were in the World Series, and I think we were a better team than the St. Louis Cardinals, but we lost because seven games of baseball, the better team doesn't always win. In 2013, in the American League Championship Series, when I think we were the better team than the Red Sox, we lost, right? Oliver says, we have been the best Quidditch team at Hogwarts for two years in a row. And we are the best Quidditch team at Hogwarts this year. And the world, the universe owes us a championship. We need it. Like, we deserve this. Like, we are disrespected by the universe unless things go our way. To me, there's there's something about this idea that That respect is about getting what one is due, which means that sometimes the respect we think we are owed runs up against the chance and the reality of the world, right? And we have to deal with the fact that maybe we won't get what we want or what our hard work and effort has has led us towards, right? You know, one of the reasons sports can be so heartbreaking is because the best team doesn't always win. That's why it's exciting. It's It's not a machine. It's chance and luck and skill and good days and bad days and as a long-suffering Detroit Tigers fan, it it makes me very sympathetic to Oliver. So, you know, Vanessa, we've been speaking about respect mostly at an interhuman
2: level. Yes,
0: and I'm interested again in sort of Lupin. We know he's a great teacher, but Lupin's bringing of creatures into his classroom to be defeated. In our Patreon segment last week, we talked about like the the nature of the bogart and whether it was destroyed or merely defeated. Mm-hmm. And that's a question I have this time too because we now are learning that other creatures have been brought into the classroom and that there's this grindylow that they are going to face next and we get a picture of the grindylow, we see the grindylow in the tank. And the question I have and it's not clear to me from the text but I think it really has a bearing upon this question of respect is are these creatures that Lupin is bringing in are they evil or are they dangerous? Mm. Right? Because a non-human creature which is dangerous to give respect to those non-human creatures, we it makes sense that we might protect ourselves from them. Do the things that make us secure from the danger that they cause, right? And a being that is evil, protecting yourself maybe means more than the bare minimum for right. Like for a creature that has no ill will towards you is just dangerous because they're dangerous, right? I'm getting the sense that these creatures are destroyed in Lupin's class, right? And I'm not sure that's the way we should, you know from a muggle perspective there are lots of wild animals that are dangerous to humans i really love wolves and i think it's terrible the way wolves have been massacred in in the americas because they're dangerous to humans sometimes very rarely but dangerous to human crops and so we make them into evil creatures that deserve destruction right and so this kind of human humanoid creature the grindylow in the tank i get really uncomfortable with the idea that like that this is an evil creature that deserves to be destroyed Rather than just a dangerous creature we need to learn how to manage our relationship with. It seems like managing our relationship with creatures that we don't understand that are not human, that may be dangerous to us, that's the respectful thing to do. Destruction seems to exceed the bonds of what it means to be respectful towards that which is not human, but that we share, you know, this earth with. Right? What do you think about that?
2: I think that's such an important question, Matt. And we don't know, right, if— Lupin is going to destroy it or just, you know, show the kids this is something that you have to be careful from and how, right? Your wolf example is something that I've been giving a lot of thought to because I'm going to Yellowstone in a couple of weeks. Mm. And wolves and coyotes have been really actively repopulated in the area, which is something I'm really grateful for and I'm so glad And it means that on our hikes, we have to be pretty watchful of wolves and coyotes because we're intentionally not going during a very busy time of year, which means that they will be around more and that makes it more dangerous. And I am fine with that, right? I am entering their space. And so I feel fine with that. It's a respect that also is an acknowledgement that this thing is dangerous, but it has to involve not thinking it's evil.
0: Yeah, right. Vanessa, it's now time for our sacred reading practice. And we are doing Lectio Divina this week. So why don't you pick a passage for us, and we'll do Lectio together.
2: Okay, I found a sentence. Your grandmother sent yours to me directly, long bottom, said Professor McGonagall.
0: So the first step of Lectio, Vanessa, is to discuss what is literally happening in the chapter. So at the surface level, what is literally happening in the chapter when this line is revealed to us
2: well mcgonagall has her gryffindors her third year Mm. gryffindors in the classroom they are talking about the very first hogsmeade trip and she's like those of you who have had permission forms sent in or brought to me may go to hogsmeade and neville Mm. who we know is very forgetful is like, "Oh, I think I forgot mine." And she's like, "Don't worry about it. Your grandmother sent it in to me directly." And I love this cuz we find out later that McGonagall knows Neville's grandma, and so I like to pretend that the two of them correspond regularly and are old friends.
0: You know, I I think given what you just said, like it maybe McGonagall got the the permissions up directly just because they're friends, right? But the way it reads to the class is like, oh, because ne- Neville's helpless. It had to go in directly, which is unfair to Neville, right?
2: Well, but the grandmother is doing it because she thinks Neville is helpless.
0: Yeah, m- I, maybe, maybe.
2: This is me editorializing that I think that there's a friendship there.
0: Oh, okay, okay. So the second step of Lectio Divina is to, to reflect upon what other stories this line reminds us of. So, Vanessa, would you read the line one more time?
2: Yeah. Your grandmother sent yours to me directly, Longbottom, said Professor McGonagall.
0: The only thing I can think of, Vanessa, is uh, in the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. (gasps) So good. When Principal Ed Rooney calls Ferris Bueller's mother and is like, your son has been absent nine times. Nine times, right? And meanwhile, Cameron is is hacking the computer system and reducing the number of days that Ferris has been absent. I know something about permission slips, parental communication, communication between administrators and parents. That's that's what I'm feeling. And also I just I really love that movie.
2: Yeah, it reminded me of a similar moment of in a movie called The Next Three Days with Elizabeth Banks and Russell Crowe, which I don't think is a good movie, but it's one that I enjoyed a great deal. And there's a moment where they're trying to escape the country. And they have to get through immigration before Elizabeth Banks' character's identity gets put on high alert. And they get through immigration, and you sort of see as they're running, you know, as you see their backs, that this photo comes up as like, do not let this person through, but Mm. it's too late, right? This, like, in the nick of time, identity, you know, saving thing. And I, it feels like a lot of bureaucracy is that, <laughs> where you're like, oh, did that work? Okay. Right? Like, it's just sheer chance that, like, Harry doesn't have a permission slip signed and Neville does, right? Like, they both have parents who were lost yeah. due to this war, yeah. but Neville has a grandmother who's willing to sign and Harry has an uncle who's not. And, yep. yeah, just like the faultiness of bureaucracy.
0: A bit more than chance, though, because I, they're, Hogwarts is using this to kind of keep him from leaving the grounds, though, also. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. So now we're going to go to the third step of Lectio Divino, which is to think about what this line reminds us of in our own life. And the line again is, your grandmother sent yours to me directly, Longbottom, said Professor McGonagall. I mean, Cammy's about to start swimming at her middle school. And she brought home a permission slip and was like, "Will you sign this so I can go swimming. And we're excited because we're happy that she wants to go swimming. But like, you know, we get emails from the school all the time and we saw no notification about swimming happening at any time. And it just makes me wonder, like, why is this all important, like, bureaucratic maneuver entrusted to children? Like, why are they the facilitators of this communication? I mean, Neville's grandmother and Professor McGonigal got it right. Like, the adults can correspond. Let's correspond directly. Why does why do we need to make our children the the middle persons of this transaction? That's my that's my slightly aggrieved reflection upon how this bears upon my own life. How about you, Vanessa?
2: Yeah, I fell into a very strange moment at the beginning of COVID, which was that my passport was going to expire in April of 2020. So in February of 2020. I sent in my old passport with all the necessary things to get my new one. And then there were all these delays. And so I was without a passport for months and months and it just kept getting extended. And in the meantime, my driver's license expired in June of 2020 and neither place was renewing. And so I had no valid form of identification. And it just became this cyclical problem where like I got pulled over Because the registration on my car had expired, but I couldn't get the registration on my car because I didn't have a valid form of identification, right? And the police officer was super understanding because I'm a white woman and I like walked him through it slowly and was like, this is how we got to this place. But like, I cannot convince any mechanic to, you know, renew my registration But, like, I could have been ticketed and fined and all sorts of things through, like, really no fault of my own but just bureaucratic nonsense. And, yeah, that's what it reminds me of in my own life, that sometimes these bureaucratic things can save us and, you know, keep us safe and any number of other things. I love showing people proof of my vaccine, right? Like, it's such a point of pride. I'm like, yeah, I'm vaccinated and thanks for checking so I can go into the theater and feel safe right now. And other times I'm like, this is just torture for the sake of torture.
0: So when we moved up here, Colette had had a South Bend, Indiana mobile number for 15 years. And when we moved up to Cambridge, she finally got, she wanted a 617 number because we were yeah. we we're going to be lifetime Boston residents now. And so the first thing she did out of excitement was change her phone number. And then she went to, you know, every company and organization that has our phone number and tried to change the number. And in order to change the number, they send a verification code
2: code to your old number. to
0: your cell phone number <laughs> so so Colette was trapped in like this limbo of of having a new number, but being unable to verify her new number and change her yep. new number for every single organization credit card company uh you know insurance and and investment all everything was just like it was a nightmare
2: it's a nightmare. it's a nightmare yep. these bureaucratic things
0: Vanessa, step four is what this line calls us to in our own lives. So let me read it one last time. Your grandmother sent yours to me directly, Longbottom, said Professor McGonigal.
2: I mean, it calls me to, something that I hope we as a company do anyway, but I know it's something we can grow at, which is, you know, we run these pilgrimages and there are just so many logistical things that we need from people, right? We need proof of vaccination. We need their emergency contact information. We need their doctor's information. And we need that to, to protect them and to, you know, in order to be able to take care of them, if something happens on these trips. Yeah. And it, it just speaks to me of like the compassion that we need to have. Cause you know, we hear back from people being like, I don't currently have a GP. I just switched jobs, you know, and w- we always yeah. try to work with people and who am I kidding? It's mostly Laura who deals with people and she can't help, but deal with <laughs> compassion. Cause she's such a lovely person, but right. Like, when I'm the person who's making other people go through a bureaucratic system, I want to make sure to be as humane and humanizing as possible. That's what it calls me to. What about you, yeah. Matt?
0: I mean, I think it's similar. I, you know, I've, I've been working at Harvard for, I guess, eight years now. And as a faculty member, I you kind of operate astride the bureaucracy of the institution. I mean, you have to deal with it, obviously, in some ways, especially around tenure processes and so forth. But in terms of like other administrative things, you're kind of immune from that. There are other administrative staff that are managing that. And now, though, I've come into an administrative role at the university and I've seen the extensive administrative apparatus that constitutes like this huge university, this huge institution and how complicated and dense that can be Um, and on the one hand i've just been kind of learning all that stuff and it's like again things are very complicated administratively here i think sometimes more complicated than they need to be and i think that's the that's the point is like when i can i think i ought to recognize that bureaucracy exists to to like mitigate risk and keep institutions and people safe and i should be aware of those policies and practices so I will understand what the risks are and who is being kept safe, but then also to understand that that sometimes there are more streamlined processes, that the purpose of the bureaucracy is always to serve folks. And so if the bureaucracy is getting in the way of serving folks, then figure out a different way to serve them, right?
2: Right. Exactly. Well, Matt, thank you so much. That was such a beautiful Lectio that you led us on.
0: We got to a really great place. Thank you.
2: Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. Our voicemail this week is from
1: Jolie. Hi, Sacred Text team. I was listening to the episode on Book 2, Chapter 16, on yearning, and the discussion about Myrtle and how so much time would have been saved and harm avoided if people had just asked her what happened to her. It reminded me of an offering last year by Jessica Dore, the therapeutic tarot practitioner, She was writing about the fool, this person at the very beginning of a journey, and connecting it to the story of Percival from the Arthurian legends. During the search for the Holy Grail, Percival was the knight who actually ended up in the Grail castle pretty early in the quest, but he didn't ask about the Grail because of advice he had received at the start not to ask too many questions. Later, he meets a woman who can't believe he missed this opportunity that has real-world implications, The world is in crisis, there is drought, famine, and she says, all would have been restored if only you had asked. So there's a lot here about staying curious and bringing a beginner's openness to everything we do. But in a later offering, Dor mentions another character, Kundry, a wild woman who crashes Percival's knighting ceremony to publicly shame him for going to the grail castle and not asking about the grail. So she shames him, but then brings him to the place where he ultimately finds redemption and the grail by asking a king what ails him. It's something I think a lot about, how shame often disincentivizes us from asking for help or asking other people what's wrong and makes us turn inwards and self-isolate to protect ourselves. But maybe this is a cue to take feelings of shame as a reminder to go back to that beginner's mindset and try to do the harder thing of turning outwards and ask the question. Thank you so much for all of your work and all the great insights you guide us to.
0: Thanks, Anjali, for the, this really wise and interesting voicemail with its references to Arthurian legend. I, I think you're right. I mean, that the idea that the person who discovers the grail is the one who asks the king why he suffers, that's been a really meaningful line to me. I've cribbed it from Simon Ve, the philosopher who I think I've mentioned on this podcast before, but it's such a beautiful line. You're filling out the story of how Percival's quest begins with a failure to ask a question even makes that line more rich for me. And it just makes me think, and I think that your voice memo helps us think through this, like the the balance between knowledge and curiosity that we need to have in order to engage the world really fruitfully and usefully, right? We have to know enough to recognize those around us to recognize that we are on a quest for the grail. We have to know what we think we're looking for, but also not know so much that we become uncurious or unable to recognize what is new because if we want change if we want to change the world we're in that means the world we're inviting has to be one that's not recognizable and so we have to have some curiosity even though we arrive at the world that is becoming with some knowledge right and that's a difficult line to walk and it's one that Percival walks both well and poorly in the grail legend but your description of that legend and of this call to openness and curiosity, even despite how we might have been shamed, is also a great illustration of, of the need for that balance.
2: Thank you so much, Anjuli. Before we take a time to honor the memories of members of our community who've been lost, we just want to say that we have received a lot of names and we are going to be working our way through them. And I know that it must be disheartening for those of you who've submitted names and haven't heard that person be honored yet. But please know that this is a practice that we take very seriously. We are not going to stop. We have you on our list and we will be publicly honoring your loved one in an upcoming episode. So thank you so much for sharing these names with us. It's really an honor to consider these people as part of our community and we're grateful.
0: Philip Kraychik, 37, who was infectiously adventurous and a seeker of wonder. Eric Grovenger, 60, a father, a husband, and a lover of music. Mandy Lawson, 92, an activist, art lover, and great-aunt. Randy Judge, who was in his 60s and was a bass player and pseudo-uncle. Rodney King, 54, a father of five. Betty and Georg Schultes. Grandparents who have been missed for too many years. Carolyn Mills Hollins, 79. A radical, a lover of life, an inspiration to many. Fran Seller, 96 a grandma and champion gossiper. Marcy Alexander, 75, a nana who loved reading and her family more than biscuits and gravy. John Schmeltzer, 79, a father, a brother, a survivor who was very loved. Let light perpetual shine upon them.
2: Matt, it's now time for us to offer blessings for characters in the chapter. Who would you like to bless?
0: I would like to bless Lavender and Hermione. I want to bless Lavender because she just lost a beloved pet, and that is is the worst. I mean, there, there are a few things worse than that. It, it hurts a lot. And I just want to bless her for that. Everyone who's kind of suffering loss and that kind of loss in particular. And I want to bless Hermione because Hermione misses it here. And Hermione is a good person who I think genuinely cares about lavender and lavender's pain. And all of us do that too. All of us kind of miss those opportunities as well. And so blessings to both of them in this difficult moment. Who are you blessing, Vanessa?
2: I am doing the rare thing. And I am blessing Severus Snape. I know we mm. talked about this in the episode, but I just think it bears repeating that he is incredibly kind to Lupin in this chapter, not just in making the Wolf's Pain Potion, but in the manner by which he offers it. And I, I find it very touching and I find it really inspiring and uh, thought-provoking as to who that I find frustrating in my life I can actually offer something of worth and kindly so i i it really makes me feel called to be better and so i'd like to offer a blessing to snape for making me think about ways that i can be better matt next week we are reading book three chapter nine grim defeat and alexis recommended the theme of rehabilitation Before we give our thanks just a couple of announcements, we have launched a new class that is called What Matters, and it will be a series of courses with four different teachers looking at four different books. You can find out more by going to NotSorryWorks.com. And everybody, in today's Every Flavored Bean conversation, we talk about Oliver Wood, good coach or sort of pathetic coach. And you can listen to that and many other things if you join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. And we are edited and produced and endured by A.J. Uramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. And our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. We are distributed by Acast.
0: Thanks to Angelie for her voice memo this week. To Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Debbie Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Takayel, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of you who sent in the names of your loved ones to be remembered this week.
2: So, Matt, we now get now to offer— said, Oh, sorry. Oh, no. Nope. Go for it. Matt, we now get now... to offer blessings for characters. <laughs> you said go!
1: I know, but then you didn't, so I thought you wanted me to go.